Everybody, I'm Eugene Driscoll. Welcome to Naval Gazing, the Valley Indie podcast. I work for the Valley Independent Sentinel. It's valleyindie.org, covering Connecticut's lower Naugatuck Valley. So, all right, let's just get right to it, because these are busy people. They, they have lives, they have things to do. They don't have time to sit here and converse with me for too long. But Untold Crimes and Penalties was released to Netflix about a week ago. Untold is a new sports docuseries, sort of Netflix answer to ESPN's popular 30 by 30 documentary series. And as I'm reading this, I forgot, I just got reading glasses, so I should probably put them on. Uh, each episode, forget it, focuses on a single issue and crimes and penalties tells the inside story of the Danbury Trashers, a minor league hockey team launched by Danbury trash hauler Jimmy Galante of New Fairfield, by the way, before it imploded in federal indictments, mob connections, and deeply unfair business practices. Galanti made his 17-year-old son, AJ, the team's president, by the way. And here are 30 seconds from the preview for this documentary. And spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, turn this off right now, go watch it, and then come back. But here's the, here's the preview, 30 seconds. A gentleman by the name of Jimmy Galante bought his 17-year-old son, his own hockey team. I'm the president of the Danbury Trashers, and I'm 17 years old. <laughs> this was the largest investigation I've ever been a part of. Jimmy was the real Tony Soprano. We were the bad boys of hockey. A freak mix of pro wrestling and the Mighty Ducks. Yeah, that's probably the best line of the documentary where they where AJ describes what the trashers were. And I'd say it's accurate, the combination of the Mighty Ducks and uh, WWE. One thing I'll say right off the bat, I'm just going to throw my own opinion out there. And uh, that this this podcast is fact and, and, and some opinion. I don't think there's any record anywhere of David Chase, the, the, the creator of The Sopranos, or anybody involved with The Sopranos, or anybody who wrote for The Sopranos, including like Richard Price and all these famous uh, writers that ties Jimmy Galante to the character of Tony Soprano. It's the only thing I'll say right off the bat. And if you have access to Google and you have fingers and ears, you could look that up yourself. But you no, know, I remember thinking the same thing when I was watching the documentary, because when, because I remember also watching the Sopranos. And I think that's why a lot of people are intrigued by this case. And I remember they, it may have been based on another family. Yeah, there, it, it definitely was. It definitely, I have, yeah. uh, I have a recordings and I have, I can even share all that later, but that was Karen Ali, by the way. Let me go around and introduce everybody. Cause I'm very, I'm very nervous and I'm very proud to have uh, each member of the panel here tonight. What I've gathered is a bunch of uh, people who were reporters and journalists and editors working for the news times of Danbury, Connecticut, where the trashes were based, the newspaper that provided extensive coverage of Jimmy Galante before, during, and after the whole after the whole Danbury Trashers thing, I also have a former mayor to introduce in a second. Uh, these journalists will be responding to the doc and uh, sharing memories, if they have any, of uh, different aspects of the Galanti case. Uh, so let's go around in alphabetical order. First, we have you just heard her speak. She is the News Times former court reporter. She was an editor with the paper. She won a public occurrence award at the news times was that at the news times karen you won yeah that? yeah 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 that was fun what was that for yeah that was for um galante oh it was for this oh awesome yeah it, the, the whole the whole team won it but okay. um yeah i was like the lead reporter and you're currently a strategic communications manager with michael j london and associates is that correct I actually i just moved on to quinn and harry there you go the okay PR forget firm. all that this yeah. is where my editing will come into play but in any That's case okay. Welcome to the show, Karen Ali. My next thank guest. You, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. I'll go in an alphabetical order. The next guest was the longest serving mayor of Danbury, Connecticut. He, stepped down, he stepped down in December 2020 to yep. serve as Connecticut's commissioner of the Department of Revenue Services, which doesn't sound quite as exciting. But welcome to the program. Former mayor of Danbury, Mark Bouton, everybody. Thanks, uh, Eugene. I, I hope I don't risk my job by being on here tonight, but um, I couldn't resist. Uh, and uh, those were certainly exciting times. I do miss uh, everybody on the screen because even if you're being covered, you know, by a reporter or an editor, you, you, you know, I always understood what the what the border was, you know, what the barrier was. But you do develop friendships and affinity for each other, and. Uh, as I always say to young politicians that approach me about what we do, I said, don't worry, there'll be another story tomorrow. So be nice, be kind, and be uh, transparent, and um, 
you always get treated fairly. You may not like what they write, but you'll be treated fairly. So it's great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much, Mayor Bowden. Next is another former ink-stained wretch. During his years at the News Times, he covered UConn basketball. He was an award-winning columnist. He was a sports columnist. He was sort of a slice-of-life columnist at one, play, uh, one point. Uh, in addition to being a reporter and an editor in his own right, the man did it all. Please welcome Mr. Brian Coons. Thank you, Gene. Pleasure to be here with such a uh, distinguished panel, and I'm looking forward to our conversation tonight. Me too. And Brian's got to go early, so we got we to do this quickly. Uh, next guest is actually a Seymour resident, so I do have one local connection to the lower Naugatuck Valley, the area I cover for the <laughs> valleyindy.org. Uh, he was the hard-charging managing editor of the News Times when the FBI first raided Jimmy Galante's AWD trash business on White Street in Danbury. Ladies and gentlemen, my former boss, the greatest editor I ever worked with, Mr. Paul Sussman. I'm blushing. Thank you. It's great to see all my uh, former <laughs> colleagues and a uh, former acquaintance and good acquaintance in Mark Bowden again. Yeah. So, all right, let's get started. So I worked at the News Times from 2003 to roughly 2009. I did two tours uh, at the News Times at Danbury. Uh, and at one point I, I spent like an hour with Jimmy Galante. I don't remember even what the story was. I don't think I even got a story out of it. I just remember he couldn't stop talking about Mary Connolly, our editorial <laughs> writer. And he had sent her, he had sent her flowers. He was just obsessed with Mary, Mary Connolly. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Let's start with uh, Brian Coons because he has to go to work, uh, literally, uh, as I said earlier. Uh, Brian, now maybe I imagined this, because you know, my memory's not so good, but I sort of remember a, when all this was going on at some point, A.J. Galante, the son, would only go through you. I remember one time being in the newsroom, we were working on some story, and the only person in the newsroom he would talk to was you. I even remember, he, I think he called on the overhead phone. We were on deadline for some story about Galanti. I don't know where it was in the, in, in the timeline, but a hush came over the newsroom because he wanted to talk to you and you alone. So everyone just sat there and listened uh, as you were talking to this kid. And did I make that up? Maybe I was drinking. What was going on? No, and I think it really it played out the way that, that Mark was talking about a little bit before, that he was the president of the Treasures as you know, perhaps as absurd as it might be, 17 years old, but I spoke with him as he were the was as if he were the president, which he you know which he was, and that I think that I treated him fairly. I think that he thought that I treated him fairly. I think that his dad thought that I treated him fairly, and and like Mark said, that he may not have liked everything that I wrote, but I would get you know his his side of the story, or if I had a question or I needed a detail, would reach out to him and give him a. a a fair shake, but I think well, that that's was it a thing, Brian? Ahead. What was it a thing where he would? Uh, am I wrong though? Because I remember him specifically asking, like, you were the only person he would talk to at one point. Is that correct, or, or am I wrong? No, that is correct. I think okay. that, that he felt, and you know, I'm not sure where that originated from. You know, perhaps from his his dad and such too. That didn't trust anyone in in, in the media, and from going from the early days to his initial press conference. I didn't cover them as a beat. Rich Gregory that, you know, folks here may remember, covered the Trashers as a beat. As you mentioned earlier, I was covering UConn at that time. But I would come in and do some some spot duty. Um, actually, the, the second year when they ended up playing the team from Kalamazoo for the, uh, the championship, went out to Kalamazoo and had a chance to, you know, just sit and not necessarily for a story, but shoot the breeze with AJ a little bit and, you know, what, what's going on, how are things going? So I think there was a rapport there that I just, I wasn't out to um, necessarily bury them, but I wasn't out to either, you know, uh, glorif glorify the Trashers or the AJ or the Galante family either. My objective was, was to get the, was to get the story. And he, in fact, you know, he was really, he was my, my best source. He was just a kid, though. I mean, you look back. There's that scene in the documentary. Oh, sure. Where he they, he introduced. I mean, he's at a press conference, and the kid's 17 years old, and he acts like a 17 year old kid, and it just kind of thrust into the spotlight. Uh, and I guess my one of the things I'll say nice about the documentary is that I like the, it's sort of AJ story. Jimmy Galante is still an enigma, I think, to a lot of us, and you don't really know have any idea of who he is as a man by the end of this. But so, what was AJ like? Did he seem like he was in over his head? Because the documentary makes it seem like, well, actually, he's the guy that put the team together. For in terms of positives uh, for the Trashers, he's the kid that did it. Was he scared? Was he nervous? What was he like to talk to? I think he was initially. I do. I think that he was 
nervous and scared. But I think on the, you know, the other side of that coin, I think that he was energized and excited, like you heard him there, that, holy cow, we're going to have a cross between, you know, professional wrestling and the mighty ducks. And as you see from game one, pup, you know, puck drops and the gloves drop and let's, let's go. I mean, there was no um, illusions here about what this team was, was going to be. It was going to be a fight first, play, play hockey second type of team. Um, that said, I think that that was the whole marketing shtick. Um, fans from Greater Danbury responded to that. And I think as more fans filled the arena, as all of a sudden now, you know, it wasn't just the News Times and WLAD. You had media from Hartford coming, media from ESPN coming, media from New York coming. I think that you could see him growing into this role, becoming more confident, um, but again, I think that, and it's always the way I've tried to conduct myself, um, You're covering fair. UConn with, with Jim Calhoun, like no, <laughs> with Jim Calhoun, the same, and Jim Calhoun hated my guts. Um, as Mark had mentioned, I'm, you know, Mark had always been a straight shooter with me. I'm sure there were times when I was a take on life columnist. He didn't necessarily like some of the things that I wrote, but you try to maintain that, that professional, you know, relationship with people and don't you know, don't burn bridges. It's not always, you're not always going to be liked, but your job is to report the story, you know, as best and as fairly and as accurately as you can. All right. Since you got to go, what was your impression of this uh, documentary? And I'm also going to ask you how many, how many uh, hockey sticks would you give it out of five? I just made that up. I don't know. What'd you say? So what I thought was, was really interesting here was, you know, I think that you would use the word ambiguity uh, early on that this this documentary makes it very clear that, you know, certainly the fighting, the bad boys of hockey, that that whole image, yes, that that put, you know, fans in the seats, section 102, the whole nine yards. But it's not that the fighting isn't the reason that they won. The reason that they won is because they they frankly they cheated, right? You look at the doing the the jobs, and they mentioned not just the no-show. AWD, DWD, all these, you know, the alphabet soup trash companies being able to do these no-show jobs, not just for players. And, you know, you had former trashers um, confirming that in the, in the documentary, their wives as well. You know, you looked at, I remember with the indictment, I went back and did a little bit of research on stories that, you know, I wrote and, and, and Karen wrote and other folks wrote that the salary cap for the United Hockey League at that time was $250,000 and the feds estimated that the uh, the trashers were somewhere like three times that, somewhere around $750,000. And they still didn't win a championship. And they still didn't win a championship. But the point is that, you know, you talked about AJ, that, you know, um, Jim Galante was ready to, you know, open the purse strings, write the checks, bring them in. But, you know, if we're going to go and we're going to pay you three times than what you would get from other, some other team. We're going to give you some no-show jobs and some of those other things. Yeah, you know what? Okay, you know, I don't care about scoring goals or, or assists or being a, a great defender or a great goal, whatever you want me to do, Mr. Galanti. And that's really what it, what it came down to. And I think that you, you, you see that, and that's really, you know, it, it's why they won, why they were able to command, I think, the, the attention and this whole mystique that they had. It wasn't because they were the, necessarily the best hockey players. They were some of the, the best fighters and that, you know, it was almost like, okay, the, the bad boys of hockey. And then, you know, every other team had, had bounties on their heads. It's interesting. Uh, and I'm going to throw it to, to Mayor Bouton in a second, but I thought there's so much talk in this documentary uh, from Galante himself, Jimmy Galante himself, we hear loyalty come up again and again, loyalty, loyalty, loyalty. But I kept thinking, well, what about integrity? You know, and, and, and let me ask you, Mayor Bouton, and Brian, if you got to, if you got to dip out, uh, go ahead and do so when, uh, whenever you want, but uh, you're also welcome to stick around. But like I, I look back and like I was a I was a person who was in uh, uh, downtown Danbury an awful lot uh, in the trasher days. You know, I started at the News Times 2003. I, I don't remember how old I was. I think I was in my maybe maybe I was 30 at most. I don't know how to add. But, you know, I was a member of the Polish American Club right there, card carrying member. You know, I'd go to two steps. I was a regular at Cousin Larry's uh, up the road there. Uh, I remember, you know, I was just 
texting one of my friends. We uh, got into sort of a verbal altercation with with trasher players at that uh, country bar that was in Danbury uh, for five minutes. Luckily, they didn't beat the heck out of us. I had a mechanical bull, uh, which I which I which I I proudly broke uh, by accident because of my heft. But so you had this great thing in a way happening in that particular block of Danbury at that particular time where the city was really trying to push people to go uh, downtown and he was putting butts in seats and there was something about the mystique that fit Danbury and just fit hockey at that particular time. And then in two years, well, he, the guy was a massive cheat. The team is shut down. He's in jail and that's it. Do you carry any resentment? And I might be projecting mayor Bowden, but do you, is there any resentment when you look back about what unfolded in just those two years with the Danbury Trashers? I don't know if I carry resentment. Certainly it was, look, you know, when you have, and I think Karen can probably speak this really well, as well as Sussman too. Um, when you have that big, uh, that massive of an investigation with that many agents working on it, uh, with that many uh, uh, resources dedicated towards investigating one uh, organization, um, it's unnerving, you know, in a sense, um, you hear things, uh, this is right when the investigation was going on, when Jim decided to do the team, I, and I said this publicly, and, and, and interestingly enough, I was interviewed for that documentary, I spent three hours with those guys that did the documentary, it all fell on the floor, but that's okay, I think that's probably a good thing when it's all done, but, um, you know, when uh, Jim first said he wanted to do this team, um, I had heard the rumors, but I, I didn't have anything concrete to, to point to. I couldn't say you did this, no way. Yes, he had a tax indictment uh, and that he had served his time. We're the second chance society, you know, and, and we were so desperate for a win downtown to get something going there that, as you mentioned, would put seats in. And it did, it worked. Um, and I have to say, you know, I didn't like the fighting. I stopped going after about maybe four or five games and I, between the two years. And the reason I stopped going was, first of all, Section 102, I could not walk in that building without being completely harassed. And it was, it was mortifying. I mean, it was if you were with somebody or I was with my wife at the time or whatever, and I walked in, I was like, I got to get out of here. This is, they thought it was funny. I just found it embarrassing. Um, and then, you know, I, I like I understand fighting is part of the game. But I thought there was too much fighting, not to be, you know, I just, it just was not my thing, you know. Um, it, but you look at it, it did fill the arena. You, you take a great organization like the Danbury Titans that followed them a couple, you know, a couple teams after. They were a really solid organization with good funding as well. And they were great level hockey. Nobody went compared mm. to what Jimmy did because there was no blood on the ice. There was no fighting. So uh, unfortunately, it's, it's, you know, it's like negative campaigning in politics. Everybody says they hate it, but they always read those flyers, right? So, um, you know, that was a little bit of an issue. So am I, I guess, am I resentful that we, we weren't able to continue that on and build on that success? I think a little bit, sure. I mean, I, I, I thought they had a kernel of a great idea. Um, maybe not so much fighting. Maybe we, we scale it back a little bit, but... Um, obviously that's a rough league and that is one step below the NHL. So I get it. Um, I, I mean, you look at like that, the yard goats, what the yard goats have done and how they've yeah. become like the darling of, of, I mean, media. It's like, I don't know if the reporters get passes all the times, but I, I can't go on Twitter without yeah. seeing something about the yard goats. And it was like, oh, well, that seemed like that was the potential uh, in Danbury. How about mayor? I, I was looking back and you were, I mean, uh, you know, I started at the news times in 2000, in 2003. I was at a weekly paper yeah. before that. In my mind, you had been mayor since like 1971. As far as I knew, I had no institutional knowledge. You know, I was just trying to keep Paul Sussman from, from screaming at me, you know, but you had only taken office in 2002. You were like a brand new mayor yeah. and you got this guy with his charisma and that goes Brian Coons. Thank you, Brian, for, for coming. But uh, did it create any, in those early days, in your first couple of administrations there, did it create any problems politically for you where you have this guy and there's the rumors out there? I know he poured $3 million, $2 million, whatever it was, to get the, the uh, arena up to snuff that had been like sitting, I guess, vacant for a while or didn't have whatever. Uh, was there anything uh, rough waters in terms of Delante and, and your beginning of your per, uh, political career? Generally, no. I mean, Jimmy, you know, Danbury is a city, but it's like a small town. Everybody knows each other, even though it's a city. Right. So people knew 
or had heard the rumors like I had. But there, there's just a couple little quick things I just want to sneak in here, uh, Eugene. One is, uh, and the current, the Hartford Current got this wrong, and I'm not going to say who, and I did correct it after, but they thought, the current thought, that the city owned the arena. We did not own the arena when Jimmy did those renovations. In fact, the permits were applied for by Eagle Eye Sports. That's the company that owned the arena that was owned by somebody who lived in New Jersey. So we had nothing to do with that, you know? So there's no way I could quote influence permits or anything like that. We had nothing to do with that. We didn't own it. And there was a perception early on in the investigation that the city owned the rink and somehow uh, the trashers got a special deal to be in the rink. And that's just not true. Um, the second thing is that um, in the documentary, and those two young guys do great documentaries. If you have not seen Wild Wild West, put it on your list. It's fantastic. It's outstanding, yeah. It's outstanding. And they also did the Battering Bastards of Baseball, which is really <laughs> Kurt Russell. Yeah. Not the independent team. And the- They're good guys. But they had, I caught it towards the end. They, they said that um, you know, Kevin O'Connor, who's a good friend of mine, was a U.S. attorney, said when you, when you throw out a net you, you, and it goes against the ocean floor, you – you catch a lot of stuff. And they said, you know, like we caught the Waterbury. And Joe Santapicha was not the mayor of Waterbury. He was the former mayor of Waterbury. He had been, he was elected in 89 and indicted in 90 or 91. And he had been out of office for, you know, 10, 15 years or whatever. So that wasn't quite accurate either. But, in, you know, I, I, again, those two things I thought outside of that, I thought, you know, it was very well done. But look, that wasn't you know, our paper, though. That wasn't. That wasn't that's right. For no, the record, that wasn't me, Paul. That was the thing I'm going to say, Karen, unless asked by Eugene, the coverage from the local paper, the News Times became the go-to paper about what the hell is going on in this investigation. Why? Because you guys were boots on the ground. You were there every day. You knew all the players. You knew who to call. And then you also had your contacts both the, with the federal officials and, and with the prosecutor's office. And we're so, also, we were also accurate. I like to right. pride ourselves on that. That's why you're accurate. Because we double you, check you, and check, you know, like yeah. good reporters do. That's one thing, you know, I, I remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, Karen or Paul, but I specifically remember the News Times never saying like Jimmy Galante mobster, right. Jimmy Galante mafia. And I remember because I, I was the online guy in 2006 and oh I, had God, to, yeah. I had to put all the, the audio, the wiretaps from the FBI on our website, which is that's a whole other there. There's a documentary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the News Times website in those days. But like, it, yeah, he was kind of he was associated. He paid a mob tax to the actual mobsters. But yeah, I remember so- like and that was Paul and you guys were very careful. It was annoying. Uh, yeah. Because we had to say like alleged mob ties. It was kind of yeah. It doesn't sound as good, and it's like awkward. But we we right. We were always. It wasn't as flashy. Different era of journalism, I think, and that um, you know we just didn't do hot takes. We didn't sort of say what was on our mind. We, you know, we weren't didn't feel it was our job. And I know Karen feels very strongly about this because we used to talk about it to really analyze. It was our job to report what was going on, and we had no specific evidence that we had in front of us that he was an organized crime figure. It was easy to deduce along those lines that he might be, but that's a way different standard. And at least that era, the era that Karen and I came up in journalism, putting it in print in a newspaper. Now you could pursue stories suspecting he is and seeing if that panned out, but it was just a different era. And I think the one thing that I almost sort of took issue with the documentary is in retrospective, well, everyone should have known this. Well, in retrospective, it's easy to know this once the feds indict him and there's all this paperwork to be seen. But Karen and I don't have access to wiretaps. You know, we don't have hundreds of FBI agents whispering in our ear. So we, you know, we're, we're covering it in real time and covering Galante in real time. And he's a man, as Mark just said, he's a man of many layers, of many dimensions, you know? He's donating yeah. money for new right. football fields for new Fairfield and hospital wings and stuff like that. And you just come off as sort of um, of, of sore losers or, or you know, or of, of, of downers in the community as buzz killers if you're going to always crap on people who you suspect not be, might not be the best people at heart but um, but still do good things for the community. So you have to be careful, I think, when you're covering the community. Karen, I was, I'm sorry, I cut you I off. was blown away, and I'll throw it back to Karen. I apologize, too. But uh, I was blown away. There's one part of the documentary where the uh, one of the, 
I don't know, team people is like, well, you know, he was Italian and he was in the trash business. So what do you think? I was like, what? How can you just, I can't believe how you would just, you could just say yeah. that. But Karen, so you were involved in, in like the courts. I mean, you were the court reporter for the News Times. Uh, and you were involved in, in the very first, I mean, it was Fred Lucas who had covered like the raid and then you were covering the court stuff. Uh, and I know you were well connected and well sourced on the local level with courts and attorneys. But when the feds get involved, my impression, because I have no sources at either level, really, the feds are a whole different ball of wax, right? They're much more impenetrable to kind of say, hey, here's what's going on. Was that challenging for you as to trying to chip away at what was going on here? Yeah, that's a really good point. They they are hard. They were harder to 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 source and they didn't say as much, but um, different. I mean, I don't want to say who, but there were different people that did talk. um and that were helpful yeah i don't want to out anyone but you know you know how journalism is good reporting and just being a pain in the neck and eventually someone does talk um and you get you you don't maybe get stuff on the record but maybe you get stuff that you can you know that takes you somewhere so we did have some good sources but yeah of course it's harder right Um, go ahead go ahead go ahead Ahead, well, that Paul was saying was really interesting. Well, was something that I've considered a lot too about the layers of Galante. Cause I know you were saying he's an enigma and um, one of the, it's one of the things that struck me during the documentary was just how it showed how close he was with his family and like a family guy, all those videos yeah. of him with his kids. I mean, you don't always see that with families. Um, I think it's still. I, an, I, and, I, Karen, I thought that was a takeaway was yeah. the relationship between AJ and Jim. I never saw them like that, you know, growing up, you know, I, it was fascinating. Yeah, well, it's funny because I had I had that sense when I was covering him too, that he was very loyal to his family. He got, there. I have a funny Harple story. Do you guys want to, I think Harple would want me to talk about it. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. fun, it's not funny, but Dave Let's Harple say who was, Dave Harple, are, are, yeah, are the, he was a former News Times uh, photographer for, for ever and passed yeah. away. Yeah, great guy. great guy, great, great photographer, great guy. And I remember I was writing, uh, it was the point where I was writing a personal profile on Galante and he wouldn't call me back. He wouldn't email or nobody, nobody at his company, even I think Dunleavy, who used to <laughs> work for the News Times, who went over to work for Jimmy, wouldn't oh, email right. us back or, and you know, when you write a profile on someone, you obviously would like at least a comment. You at least want to let them know what's coming, you know, but nothing for like, couple weeks. So then one day in the newsroom, I was like, I'm going to just go to his house in New Fairfield. He's got this, he, or I don't know if he still has it. I don't think he does, but he had this gorgeous house in New Fairfield. So Harple just happened to walk by. I'm like, Harple, do you want to come with me? Cause I don't want to go alone. So Harple and I went and we're like, we're thinking, you know, he's going to not answer or just kick us out or yeah, scream. But to be honest, he never screamed at me. He was never rude. And when we got there, he let us in. We talked to him for like an hour. Like, I know you said you had a conversation with him, Eugene. We talked to him for an hour. I don't really remember too much. And he was with, um, I don't know who, but it was an associate, business associate, uh, probably maybe one of his legal team. It was pre-trial, like a pre-trial thing. He was out. He, he hadn't gotten sentenced yet. Um, he talked to us. But one thing I still remember was, and this was a long time ago, but I remember that after an hour, somebody from his family came home and I don't know who it was, but he, he told us to go out the other door. Like he was being very protective. He didn't want us to run into them. Just, it just seemed like he was, and a couple other things happened where I don't want to say who, but like relatives of his called me angry. I just got the sense that they, there was love and loyalty, at least to the family. Within the um, family. Yeah. In, in, in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, it's in the beginning of the documentary, one of the first, it's like in literally the first scene where you get one of the guys, uh, I think it was uh, uh, T-Bone, that guy, whoever, the equipment manager, kind of says, well, he was like Darth Vader. And you know, then you yeah. have the, the two twins being yeah. like, oh, this is the meanest guy ever. Uh, and, and then the T-Bone's like, and I'm a good judge of character. I really liked him. And I'm like, what? Because the one time I talked to him, I, yeah, I didn't. he didn't come across as angry or intimidating. He was definitely, I don't remember what the, I was trying to get information out of him, which was totally, totally useless. And he was, he was having, I think he was having fun, 
But he reminded me, I, I, I don't mean to disparage the guy, but he rem- I had worked for a guy in New York at a video store, right, when I was in college. And the guy uh, embezzled $365 million from Philip Morris Tobacco. He was a con man. I mean, and he had the same person. It was very similar personality to what I experienced with, uh, with that one hour with Galante. He was just sort of huffing and puffing, I, I thought, uh, to some extent. But uh, now, Paul, you, you were obviously the editor. You were the ones that at the very beginning when all this, and I'm talking about the, uh, you know, when the case broke, when they raided uh, White Street. What I remember the least about, but go ahead. Well, no, well, let's talk about, because when we were off mic uh, for a second there, you were talking about previous encounters you had with uh, Jimmy, which I thought was really interesting that you and even Karen might have had as well. Something, a football field that he had uh, financed up in New Fairfield. Well, the bottom line is I came to Danbury in 1999 and Jimmy Galante in a place without, and this was before Mark was mayor, so I can say that without a lot of celebrities, he sort of qualified as one of the sort of well-known people in the area, sort of a, a, a personality that everyone knew. So he was sort of a buzz in my ear as the you know managing editor for the first couple of years. And the first thing I can remember that came to light was that he wanted to donate a new football field to new Fairfield High School with this fancy artificial turf that now everybody pretty much has, but you know, so you don't have to maintain it. But his quid pro quo was that the girls couldn't use it for soccer or field hockey or any of the sports that he considered less than tough and masculine. And we started to write stories with that. And Karen, I thought you had written one of the stories because it had Title IX stuff and you uh, knew someone who did some Title IX expertise. Lawyer, yeah. You know, some of those stories how you couldn't do this. You couldn't have a high school sports facility and say it's only for guys and not for women. <laughs> and this went on for a little bit. We wrote a bunch of stories, and one day I got a phone call. It's like, you know, a million phone calls of managing editors. Every politician and school principal and congressman and whatever wants to complain about coverage. And someone says, probably a secretary, you know, Mr. Galani wants to talk to you, puts him on. And we had this conversation. And as I told Eugene, I never felt for a second like he was threatening me or was going to, you know, wanted to break my wrist if I didn't stop the coverage. He was trying to explain what he was trying to do. And if there was a legal problem, well, we'd get it sorted out. But, you know, he kept saying, I'm, I'm, I want to do something right for the kids. And my perception is he, from his inner uh, perception of himself, thought he was misunderstood. He thinks everybody misunderstands him from the media to the, to the FBI. He's just a misunderstood guy. And he's uh, usually out to do the right thing. That was my perception of him. Later, we had, and Karen, I didn't remember if you were part of this troop or not, he invited us out to uh, AWD, Paul Steinmetz, who was my boss, the editor, Mary Conley, and I thought another reporter, but it could have been Jason, the sports editor, too. And we were having this conversation, and it got a little bit more testy because Mary Conley, the editorial writer, liked to bait him, as she does everybody. And he says at one point, well, Mary, you write about me like Tony Soprano. And his and her response was, well, I wouldn't do it if you except you keep acting like him. So Uh that was my two big encounters with him. But I just got the impression that he was a guy who thought in many circumstances, ranging from giving a hockey team to his kid who loved hockey, but had been injured as a player and was never going to be a player, ranging from that to the high school thing in New Fairfield to uh, didn't he give Mark, didn't he give a hospital wing or something? Yeah, the hospital, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. he was trying to do the right thing and no one really understood him because he had this gruff and unpolished demeanor. That was my impression of him. And Mayor Bowden, I mean, you were born, raised Danbury. I mean, you're as Danbury as Danbury gets. So here is this documentary now comes out about, uh, you know, a uh, trash hauler with mob connections uh, who does time, uh, indicted and, and convicted as part of a RICO uh, case. Is it a blip in Danbury? Is it good, bad? I don't mean to keep uh, concentrating on the on the negative here, but I, I'm fascinated. What's been the reaction in Danbury? I guess I'll ask you. Yeah, I, well, people are fascinated by it. Everybody's either has watched it, will watch it, or is tuning in to watch it tonight. Um, I think that uh, when you can get Drake to put on your uh, uniform and you know go perform at a show or go to a club, people would say it's a positive. I've got sort of this theory and it's maybe it's just I'm just getting crazy when I get older, but (laughs) wouldn't this just be the most amazing setup to relaunch a hockey team 
back right in the same facility, maybe not as uh, rough and tumble, but think about it, right? He'd be sold out for the first like 30 games, right? After this documentary. So, but then again, you know, um, I don't know if I, I don't know if I could ever see them doing this kind of thing again. It's such a big undertaking. So I, I, I will say that in general, um, the feedback that I've gotten is uh, aside from everybody screenshotting my little cameo role in there, um, <laughs> people have said that uh, uh, not many people, people sort of got the section 102 thing, but they, they sort of mentioned to me how that didn't really reflect well on Dan Brand. I'm like, look, you know, first of all, most of those people were from out of town. Right, and, right. and secondly, um, you know, uh, Jim has many facets to him and he did an incredible amount of good, but he also had this other side to him that, you know, uh, was challenging. If you look at his system, and I don't know if Karen was going to get in this or we have enough time, but the vision he had for disposal of waste, the vision now, not when he actually, with actual vision, where he would pick up your trash, process your trash at his transfer station use a baler to put it, make it like a hay bale, put it on a train, on the train car that he owns, on the tracks that he owns, and send it to a landfill that he owns, was ingenious. It's the definition of a vertical monopoly. He controls every aspect of it, and he probably could have saved our uh, folks about uh, $25 a ton on their tipping fee, which is, translates into lower uh, fees for our residents. So that would have been great. But the problem was there were all this other stuff going on, right? So you never got to that Thing. And now what is, what's the state talking about right now as we sit here? Sending our trash to landfills. Mm. <laughs> like somebody was there 15 years ago and you all were upset at him because he wanted to do that. So I guess what I'm saying is, just like Paul said, very challenging person to understand and to know. Um, and I heard the stories too, Eugene. He had nicknames for me. People would come back and say, you know, he calls you the little mayor or little Caesar or whatever. And I used to joke about it and laugh about it. But it was I ever intimidated by him? Absolutely not. Was was I was he ever hostile with me? Absolutely not. And I think you know he knew not to get hostile with a politician. That would be a bad look for him. Yeah, because after after watching, the, I'm sorry to interrupt, Mayor. That's okay. I just can't help myself. But after watching the documentary, I was like, oh God, I'm going to have people on here, and I'm going to say, uh, you know, I, Jimmy Galante was a cheat. You know, actually, thankfully, Brian Coon said it first. Yeah. But that was my impression of him. It's just like it, it was sort of a con man and a cheat. And now, but after watching the documentary, I'm like, oh wait, now someone's going to come to my house and slash my tires because that the documentary sort of makes him seem a little dangerous, which people are are, are very much responding to. I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't even know where I'm going with this. But usually, a documentary there's a there's a redemptive arc to it. You know, it tells this story, and at the end, some of the the person learns a lesson of some kind, or there's some bigger uh, moral message for society. That's completely uh, absent uh, in this documentary. Well, either and, Mark, either Mark or Brian said it though. The arc is AJ's, not Jimmy's. Yes, true. You know, and is, true. It's, it's really Absolutely. AJ's story more than Jimmy Galani's story because the the interview with Jimmy Galani is very unrevealing in the documentary. Probably less than you guys ever got out of it. I, I think exactly the same. That's what I, except he had I had more Mary Connolly, I send her flowers references, which was kind of <sighs> humorous. Right, exactly. You almost felt there was a lawyer standing about five feet off screen during the filming talking about what was going on. <laughs> I thought the whole thing was a, was more. I almost thought the legal stuff got in the way as a sports fan. I thought I almost got the legal stuff got in the way of a really good story about this renegade hockey team. Um, I, I, Paul, you're right. And it was funny because in my interview, the, um, the, 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 I call them kids because they're young, they're mid twenties. They asked me, can you explain in layman's terms, what did Jim do or what did he allege to have done? And the best way I could phrase it is, look, the public has the right to a fair, free, open marketplace. They have a right to that. Right. And when you, when you corner the market and you don't provide that opportunity, you have eliminated that right for people out there. That's what he did wrong. And they're like, well, isn't that an antitrust issue then more than a criminal act? I said, well, if, you know, if it's alleged that you're using, uh, uh, you know, some kind of intimidation, right, to to enforce that monopoly, then it's a different story. It could be criminal. So it is fascinating. But the arc is AJ's. I think AJ grew into the job, as Brian said. He Yes, he had more money to play with than other people did, but he did put together a very exciting team. And I, I've talked to AJ many times um, now that he's an adult, and he has learned. Uh, he is a gentleman. Uh, every email he's ever sent me has always been very respectful. 
Um, and I, I, I think um, his takeaway from this was that, you know, you got to do things straight up. Yeah, that's for any ahead, sports Paul. fans who are listening or watching the sort of thing you didn't get in the documentary is not all their fight. All their players were bruising fighters. They're not all, you know, aspiring pugilists. If you go back and I didn't memorize this, but I went back and looked at their statistics. They had a lot of guys who scored 20 and 30 goals, which is a lot of goals in hockey over those years. So the guys they focused on the documentary were the brawlers, but they weren't the guys who helped them win games. In fact, if you look at the at the statistics, a lot of those guys, they didn't even let play in the playoff games because they knew it was a different animal. You needed to win a playoff game with skill and not all this fighting. So like anything, that documentary had a narrative and the narrative was it was just the fighting that won. But the cheating, the, 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 bro the breaching of the salary cap that let them hire all these top yeah. players also let them hire a lot of skilled players too for that level. And that's really what made them good more than fighting. That team would have won with the skill level he put together without all the fighting. The fighting is what put the 2,500 butts in the stands each night and got the national publicity, but that's not why they won games. Yeah, you know, Eugene, I was at that first game. I was there, actually it was with Wayne Shepard. He was still the publisher of the paper, right? Everybody from being, you know. I'm near his, uh, his boyhood home. I'm about, uh, I'm about 10 houses away. Yeah, give me a pizza over in Roseland when you get a second. But anyways, I was there, and um, I don't remember that opening fight. And that's something I would have noticed. There was a game later on in the year where they fought before they dropped the puck. That I remember because I had heard about it at City Hall the next day. But I don't remember them having a fight right before they dropped the puck. And I, I would – I don't know. I, I, I Everybody – they, if they say it's so, it must be so. But, I mean, I, I was there. It didn't stand out to me if that's what happened. And I think there was sort of a conglomeration of different events that they tried to put together to yeah. tell the narrative. There was a little dramatic license, like with the Sopranos thing, I feel. So I just, to me, I'm just not 100% sure that it, it's 100% accurate. Like, I just take it with a grain. Right, yeah, yeah I, 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 I I remember the, uh, the 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 opening night was a big deal at the paper. I remember that, Paul yeah. Sussman. That was a lot of. I mean, Dave that was Purple a... shot the photo. We had a huge front page photo right before the opening faceoff. All of the players on the ice, except the goalies, you can see them. The referee's about to drop the puck. Great shot, sky view, and it says uh, something like our headline was Danbury officially becomes a pro hockey town. No, 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 no. I remember the headline. It said "Game on." Game on. Okay. <laughs> Game on. So I think maybe that was the subhead. Thing that would have happened was have been a, a brawl. We would have had that photo too. Yeah. Yes. Of course. Like it didn't, it didn't I, think, I think the whole, listen, there were some epic brawls and I do remember that. And it yeah. became an issue with that team. And I think the sports guys did a good, great job covering it. But again, that team didn't win because it brawled better than the other team. It won because it could afford to overpay all these high pay, all these, Minor league hockey players who are still skilled enough to put the puck in the net. That's how you win hockey games. You don't win by fighting better than the other guy. You just don't. And I think that was lost in the whole thing. The other point I wanted to make about the uh, Section 102, and Mark brought that up, they were out-of-towners. One of the contexts is the Trashers came along at a perfect time for pro hockey in Connecticut. The Whalers had been a favorite in Connecticut and had been ripped away from us in the mid to late 90s. New Haven had a minor league team called the Nighthawks for years and years from the 20s up into the late 90s and then had turned to an independent team called the Knights in the early 2000s. They had closed. All these hockey fans in Connecticut were desperate for an outlook, especially the minor league fans from the New Haven area who loved the Nighthawks. That team was adored in New Haven over the years. They would pack the Coliseum, which is four times bigger than the Danbury Ice Arena. And those are the people, at least from my personal viewpoint, the games I went to, and my son loved hockey, and we went to games, but who had a lot of those fans from Section 102 showed up in uh, New Haven Nighthawks, New Haven Knights, Whalers outfits. They were desperate hockey fans from out of state, and this was their outlet, just like WWE fans have their outlet when they show up and yell at the heel at the WWE matches. So you sent me. Think, and this is, you know, to Mark's credit in his town, I don't think those were Danbury people, most of them. 
you did send me, Paul, you sent me to, to do a feature story on Section 102 specifically. And uh, yeah, the, the people that it was hard to get somebody local. They weren't even it wasn't even like they were from the town surrounding Danbury. I remember that because we were, you know, of course, I wanted to get somebody from Danbury or at least our coverage area. And yeah, they were I mean, they, they were definitely they, they loved the way they were treated. That's one thing I guess that uh, uh, AJ and the crew that ran the trashers did really well. Like they, those people were loyal. I mean, they still are to this day. You see some stuff on Facebook where it's some of the people are still talking uh, about this. So they, they they made them seem really welcome. They're also really drunk. I mean, they were drunk walking in there, uh, which is yeah, yeah, you know, it's, I fit right in. But uh, yeah, that was an that was an interesting crew. All right, so let's do final thoughts. Uh, so I don't blab on for the rest of the night. Uh, does anybody have any final, maybe, maybe things that we're not touching upon about the documentary or the mm. history of uh, Galante and Jimmy Galante and AJ Galante and the Trashers and the, the history of the News Times? I kind of remember, I just went one thing randomly, it was, it was interesting to, to work in the News Times in those years because uh, I mean, it's a very stable paper from what I hear now. You know, they're doing a great job uh, day in and day out. But it was like a sea change to be there from like 2003 to about 2009. And the Galante coverage, Trasher coverage, was like two waves. You know, this is sort of the first wave. But then my former colleague at the Valley Indy, Ethan Fry, they had done another story in like 2018 uh, recapping uh, all this. So like the News Times got a, a double bang for, for its buck. Uh, and I just want to shout out, I saw Wendy Carlson in the documentary, Brian Coons uh, made in the documentary, Rich Gregory, the former sports reporter, is there in the documentary, the late Mike Duffy, I could tell by his legs and the way he was standing, he was wearing sneakers, were all oh, in the wow. documentary, all former colleagues at the uh, the News Times. Mayor Bouton, I, you were saying something. No, I just wanted to ask Karen, what is, from, you know, you're covering all the court stuff, what is your one takeaway or your one thing that you'll never forget? From the from this case, yeah. Oh gosh, <sighs> um, there were a couple of things that were kind of personal that I, well that would hurt like somewhat people okay. in his family. So I don't want to bring it up. Actually, yeah. I feel kind of bad. No, I get you. I got. It. I got um, but <laughs> but yeah, I, I guess the big the big thing was just. The, the different layers and the fact that like I there was like this different side to him that people didn't didn't Karen, see. was there ever every really a day in court? I mean this whole thing was, you know, these raids and sort of quiet and then a negotiated deal, right? There wasn't really ever a big court proceeding, was there? Yeah, no, no, right. Right. It was that, contained. It was all contained between right. between the, like the press releases and, and the court filings. There were a lot of like court appearances where we'd go and he'd be there talking to his lawyer and ignore us and, you know, or maybe talk to us if we tried really hard to talk to him, but never really saying much. Um, one thing that was interesting was just, it was such a big case. Like there were some, there were a lot of co-defendants. It was like the biggest. 40 something, right? Uh, it, it, it was, and then every time someone would plead guilty, I mean, you guys in the, Eugene and Paul, uh, no, then I'd have to do another graphic box. You know what I mean? Because like uh, we've run a graphic. Joe torture. What? Don't remember Joe or a graphics guy? Joe yes, Myers, Joe. Yeah. So right, we'd have to like. Okay, so I love it when it got shorter because then I didn't have to write all these names and double check the spellings and you know. But um, there were a lot of co-defendants that pleaded guilty and some got jail time, some didn't. And then I believe he was. You know, I forget if he was actually the last, but he was definitely close to the last. They gave him a perp walk. I remember that because there's that picture of him that's everywhere in like the brown T-shirt and everything like that. The government sort of, you, I mean, that was a little looking back. They were definitely, and they kind of say in the documentary, they were they were going to get him. Yeah, they were going to get him, and they were working on this since the '90s. Yeah, I remember the uh, Eugene. I remember the day of the raids. I'll never forget that because my my I was out of town. I was in Hartford. I think I was meeting with the governor about something, and. My phone was blowing up, although we didn't have uh, smartphones, we had cell phones. And I was getting all these calls from people about, you know, guys walking around with FBI jackets, DEA jackets, you know, all that sort of official government gear with guns and everything. And remember, this is only what, a couple of years after 9-11. So you don't know what's happening. 
And I'm like, well, what the heck is going on? So I hop in my car, finish up, and I, I race down 84, and I get to City Hall. And I walk into my office, and my phone is ringing, and I pick it up, and hello. And it's uh, the chief with, a, with an FBI agent on the line saying, you know, Mayor, we just want to let you know we're executing warrants. Uh, and he gave me probably 15 addresses. You know, it would be like 122 Smith Street and uh, 307 Jones Street and whatever. And I'm going, oh, okay, well, what's this? you know, what's this in reference to what, you know, is there an issue? Well, we want you to know there's no, you know, possibility of the community being harmed. There's nothing, you know, it's nothing to do with terrorism or anything like that, but this is an extensive ongoing, uh, you know, uh, investigation and um, we're executing all these warrants. I said, okay, well, I appreciate the call, whatever that, but I mean, he, he, he when he read off the list of addresses, it probably went on for 20 minutes. Wow. <laughs> it's like, what the heck is going on? But then, you know, it sort of all came out over the next couple of days. Yeah, that's incredible. All right, everybody. Mr. Sussman, last word. My last word is the whole thing reminded me of one giant cartoon. And I think the whole cartoon was influenced by another Connecticut organization, the WWE. And we've already made this, maybe this is bringing this full circle, but sort of wrapping all the way about, it seemed like this goofball thing at the time from the WWE. And underneath this goofball stuff, was this obviously much more serious thing going on. But the layer at the time, the top layer was fun and funny and entertaining and probably not, not entertaining. Every guy on the other team got his face bashed in, but there was, a, 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 there was an okay entertainment value to it too that I think you can separate from the wrongdoing that Jimmy Galante did uh, in terms of the law and terms of uh, competitors and stuff like that. The trashers were fun. There was harmless fun. That's sort of the way minor league sports operated at the time and still do now. But back then was even a little more cheesier. And as far as the documentary, I think, eh, as Karen said, they took some liberties. I think there's a famous quote from a movie when uh, that says something like when the facts uh, that when the facts are, you know, contradict the legend, print the legend. Yeah, and I think the documentary prints the legend. Yeah, here's to the facts. That's true. That's very well said. All right, everybody. I want to thank uh, Paul Sussman, Mayor Mark Bowden, Karen Ali, and then previously Brian Coons uh, for coming on here tonight. This was really a joy for me. I hope people get a kick out of it, and I want to thank you all for doing this. That's all I have to say. Thanks, Eugene. We thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Take hey, care, good everybody. to see you all again.